This is the David Cassidy Connections Podcast with your host, Louise Poynton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David. From fans, friends, musicians, actors, and anyone influenced by his life. Remember, you can click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast from, so you will be alerted when new episodes are released. Thank you for downloading this podcast, where my guest today is a man inspired by David's music when he was a boy. Jesse Jackson has been talking to Bruce Springsteen fans for years. He believes, as I do, everyone has a story to tell. I recently joined Jesse on his podcast, Set Lusting Bruce, and today he connects with me to talk about David Cassidy, the Partridge family music, Bruce Springsteen, American football, and Doctor Who. And so welcome to my very good friend and guest, Jesse Jackson. Welcome, Jesse. Well, thank you, Louise. It is thrilled to be here. I am uh, so happy uh, you and I uh, got to talk on Set Lusting Bruce, and we had a lovely discussion about uh, not only David, but Bruce and, and music fandom in general. And so when you asked me to return the favor, I was thrilled to do it. I was excited. And uh, I know that at least one person, our mutual friend, Sarah Hickman, will be thrilled that uh, we have been on each other's podcasts. She's absolutely a total sweetheart. It was through your shows that Mm -hmm. I realized she was a David Cassidy fan. Yes. And I reached out to her and we got on like we do, as though we've known each other forever. Yeah. You know, in one of her uh, albums, and I'm sure she covered this, but she did an album called Misfits, which was basically all these songs that she had recorded for either outtakes or things for one-offs. And she does a I Think I Love You, um, which is really fun. And then at the end, she kind of changes the tempo. And I think I hate you. I think I hate you. It's a really good song. And um, I know that, you know, David Cassidy was one of her first musical idols. And so I, I'm, I'm so glad that we connected. Um, I do want to share that um, on Twitter yesterday, and partly because of you, but partly just the truth, someone asked, who is your first musical idol? And I said, if I have to be brutally honest and not worrying about being cool, um, David Cassidy, the Partridge family and the Osmonds, you know, I just, I love that pop. I love that pop bubblegum. And, um, and I know that's not cool. I mean, you know, the Beatles or Jimi Hendrix or the who, or even Bruce Springsteen, you know, which is what my podcast is about. But the reality was, you know, I living in, um, Radcliffe, Kentucky, watching TV. I just, you know, I, I adored um, watching the Partridge Family every week, and I, I and I adored, you know, the Osmonds, uh, One Bad Apple, and Donny Osmond, you know, Twelfth of Never. It was just always, I was a typical little teen guy liking that. Just look at the longevity of those songs. Yes. Yeah, they were part of the soundtrack of our lives, but. They meant something really special to us. And I don't think when we were, however old we would have been, 9, 10, 11, early teenagers, we never realised quite how good that music was until we got a little bit older 
and we're we're able to analyze it, break it down and go, hey, I never realized the Wrecking Crew were the musicians behind the music. What was it about the music for you that struck a chord? Um, I think it just made me happy. Um, You know, I've always been someone who, and there are certain songs that um, make you sad. And when you're in the mood to feel sad, it's good to hear. Um, Speaking of the Wrecking Crew and other things, um, Michael Nesmith, uh, who recently passed, told the story that he went into the producers and says, I've written a song. I really think we should record it. And they said, well, it's not a monkey song. And he says, well, I'm a monkey and I wrote it. How is it not a monkey song? And I go, oh, Michael, go away. And so he said he was on stage telling the story that um, so there was this young uh, singer out of Los Angeles and uh, her band said they'd record it. And Linda Ronstadt got different drum. But different drum is a song that when I was a young right out of high school, college age, every time my heart get broken, I would put different drum, you know, on with my headphones and just listen to that feeling sad. Um, You know, come on, get happy. And I think I love you and and just everything. I always felt weird. And I we talked a little bit this on my podcast, but I'm sure there isn't a massive um subset of listeners or both but you know as a 12 year old boy you're kind of embarrassed to say you like the partridge family you know you know i'd be in the grocery store and my mom would buy teen beat or 16 magazine or something and you could tell this was written toward a female perspective that's all it had but you know from my perspective it's all I had to try to find out more about music I love and and I did I loved David Cassidy and 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 I was cheering for him um that he was going to do other things besides the Partridge family you know these other you know Bobby Darren or not Bobby Darren um Bobby Sherman and and the Osmonds and all these 70s teen idols were I I grew up on top 40 radio Louise and it was the music I loved when you first saw the Partridge family was it a combination of um as many male fans have said to me I loved the music I loved his voice I loved the storylines in the Partridge family but I really wanted to be David Cassidy Oh, absolutely. Um, With the exception of perhaps I didn't want to be David because then I couldn't have dated um, Susan Day. And I had a massive crush on Susan Day. Um, I, I cannot tell you how happy, uh, you know, um, you know, Spinal Tap, the um, amps going to 11. That was my joy on a scale one to 10. I went to 11 when Susan Day was on the uh, LA Law, you know, and all of a sudden here's someone from my youth that I had this massive crush on. So to see her in an adult role and to get a little more, you know, in a not a cheesy's after school TV special like we had in the US, but an actual quote unquote going up show made me so happy. But yeah, I, I, I wanted to be as cool as uh, David Cassidy. I was I've always been someone who struggled with my weight. So I was a short, fat, um, white kid um, living in probably that we were 
I moved around a lot. My dad was in the army. So probably, but most of this time when the Partridge family was on, my biggest memories were on a house that we lived in, in Radcliffe, Kentucky. And so, yeah, you wanted to be David. You, you wanted the puka shells. You wanted the hair that, you know, looked perfect. You know, Shirley seemed to be the perfect mom, um, you know, and um, the idea that you'd get in the school bus and travel around playing gigs. And it was a good, quote unquote, sitcom. I mean, you know, the the casting was great. Uh, you know, you had, you know, Danny as the obnoxious little brother and, you know, Reuben Kincaid as the manager that was kind of their frustrated uncle slash father, you know? So yeah, I, it, it, it was just, it was a little bit of combination of everything of, it was a fun story to watch and you could, um, you always got a music in it. So that was always fun. So yeah, um, that was a kind of rambling answer, but yes, absolutely. I wanted to be David. I wanted to that, that world. And if I couldn't have been David, I want to be the next door neighbor that got to date Lori. <laughs> <laughs> you had it bad. <laughs> yes, I did. Was the Partridge Family Music your first introduction to music? What sort of music did you have in the house before then? So my parents were very uh, into music. Uh, we had the big, you know, combination TV, stereo, uh, you know, that's this massive piece of furniture. Um, and so my mom always had the radio on, always played records. I, I've made the joke often that in my household, you know, we listened to both kinds of music, um, country and Western. You know, so I grew up hearing Hank Williams and um, Merle Haggard. And I, in fact, I can remember um, my mom loved 50s rock and roll. She loved Fats Domino. Um, she loved Bobby Darin. I remember her being thrilled when, um, you know, certain songs would come on the radio. Like it was mandatory to watch Johnny Cash when he was on the TV radio, on the TV show. So I, in fact, uh, Louise, I remember being a young teenager. So this had to be in the, might have been 10 or 11. So I was around like 68, 69. And I was visiting with my cousins in Ohio and they were shocked. I could not name all four Beatles. It, we didn't listen to the Beatles music in our house. I mean, it was all country music all the time. We did not, I did not see the Beatles on Ed Sullivan you know, this was, we were watching something else. So it wasn't till I got my own AM clock radio, you know, when I was probably junior high or high school, where I started finding the top 40 station and started listening. Did you buy all the Partridge family singles and, and albums? Alongside the Osmonds, of course, but... Yes, yes. Um, no, what I did is, I, you know, I did not... Any extra money I had went on comic books. <laughs> I was a huge comic book fan. I still am. I once went on a church group to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Um, it's a beautiful national park. It, it has this massive caves that you do tours on and so the church had went down there and you know we went on the church bus we went down we did the cave and we come back and my dad was talking to my mom about how some people had bought this little book of um you know the different kind of minerals and stuff and and my mom said what did jesse wayne buy and my dad 
a comic book. And it was, I had found a comic book that was an 80 page giant of different stories of um, Supergirl from the comic book family. The fact the first eight track I can remember buying with my own money was Elton John's Greatest Hits. So that would have been 75, 76. I can remember that eight track. And I had a, um, I had a hand-me-down, oh, you guys can't see this, but maybe 12 foot long by eight inches, 12 inches by eight inches, one speaker, eight track player that had a handle and you put the eight track in there and you played it. That was my first music. music. I didn't have a record player or anything. Though I do remember, I swear, it, it, it may have been the Archies, but it may have been the Partridge Family too, um, cutting the album out of the back of the cereal box. So uh, I know the Archies had that, but I, you know, I, I, I want to think the, the Partridge family had that too, but yeah, what I would do is I had a cassette player, uh, one of those, you know, standard where you push the two buttons. And so while the Partridge family was on, I would put that near and record the whole episode. And then I could um, hear the episode again and then hear that music. Oh, we all did that because you wanted to hear the music. I mean, we didn't get the Partridge family here until a year after you. Right. Without having video recorders or being able to play back as we can now, you would sit there with your cassette recorder. You record the episode. Absolutely. And I can remember, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how things uh, stick, but I remember in an interview, Danny Bodinitz talked about that he was able to play bass one uh, recording session that he was, they actually let him because he had had, to, you know, they were all actors. And, and I remember the story, and I'm sure you know that very right, like they didn't even know that David could sing. He just looked the right way. This was just going to be a sitcom. We had no idea that, you know, they were going to end up doing this kind of music, which is kind of charming in a way, because you know nowadays, Louise, that if we did this, they would be so ready and prepackaged, they would have, you know, an album worth of materials ready to go. They would be sitting there. And this was just kind of, oh, turns out this this guy can sing. Mm. Oh, let's see what we can do. And it's just it's just a lovely success story. When you discovered that David was going out on concert tours, what were your feelings? So that's the question, isn't it? The path not taken. What do you do? Um, I always thought of him... <laughs> And it, this is this is weird because as much as I loved his music, I always thought of him as an actor first. You know, when he did David Cassidy Undercover, just a little bit before his time, because the night, you know, the the Twenty One Jump Street happens just a few years later with the same exact story, and it's a huge hit. And going to a concert was not anything my family did. We, you know, the closest we came was going to our church for, you know, they'd have music nights. They'd have different um, traveling uh, Christian groups singing. I guess it was 77, 78 when I ever had my first concert. I think it was Foghat. Once my dad and mom separated and got divorced, <clears throat> we moved to a little town called Lake Charles, Louisiana. Um, if you can, your audience, uh, Louisiana is the state that looks like a boot and Lake Charles is in the heel. We got very few <clears throat> live musicians uh, coming into Lake Charles. I had no 
thought of getting in a car and driving to Houston, Texas, or, you know, New Orleans, or anywhere else to see a show. And so sadly, um, after we got married in 84 and 86, my wife and I moved to Dallas, a lot of these artists that I would have loved to see weren't touring anymore or doing other things that I had. I So I never got a chance to see David perform live. So my answer was, I always... I always thought that as much as his voice was wonderful, I think his, in my mind, his true gift was his acting. And, and so I, I, I love that toward the end of his career, he got on Broadway and, and really earned a lot of esteem and, and, and praise for that. We're more forgiving now, Louise, that I think we now, or at least some of us and fans are more accepting of, hey, we want to support you, whatever you want to do. We love you. So if you want to do a strings album, Bruce Springsteen, go do Western Stars. If you want to be on Broadway, go be on Broadway. Um, but back then it was very much right. Like, as you said, you're a TV show. This is what you should do. And this is the box I have you put in and if you try to get out that that makes me uncomfortable do you think that was many of a fan's opinion or the industry trying to control him i think the industry i remember hearing the story uh linda ronstadt was on um johnny carson so that's how long this was carson was the for, for your younger audience um he did the tonight show for years which was a late night talk show and he was talking to Linda Ronstadt and she said that when she was touring after a while, she's like, I don't want to do Blue Bayou again. I don't want to do Poor Pitiful Me. You know, she was she was tired of it. And she said she went to see Frank Sinatra for the first time. She was thrilled every time he play did, you know, uh, fly, go fly with me or, you know, small hours or whatever you want. She said Johnny, a light bulb went into my head and said, oh, my audience wants to hear these songs the same way I want to hear, you know, Frank sing. So she goes, so now that I have a lot of joy when I do these, because I know people want to hear them. I think all of us struggle. And I think especially if you, unless you are incredibly centered uh, and let's just, uh, we know that David struggled on and off with a lot of demons. In a perfect world, he would have in his mind that, hey, I'm going to do one for them and then one for me. You know, you hear actors modern day say that. I do one for them. I do a pop culture movie. I do a fun. And then that pays the bills. And now I'm going to do a project that is a personal project and enjoy another 70s pop icon right like Barry Manilow incredibly successful and, and writes great pop songs and then for himself he did a jazz album mm. that just he like he you know I, I don't care whether this sells or not I need to do this I don't know if David had I think he came in once again too early to have that kind of power over his his career and I also think David had to worry would, would they let him do that Right. Like, I think that you hear stories and, and people are are wanting the very best. Right. Um, another story that I love is that um, one of my other musical heroes is the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. And when Brian Wilson was working with the Wrecking Crew trying to write Pet Sounds, you know, some of the uh, Mike Love especially is like, no, no, no. 
We have a formula that works. We talk about squirrels. We talk about cars. We talk about surfing. Let's not mess with the franchise. And as a creative person, you know, Brian's like, no, I, I need to do other things. And I think that a long-winded answer is that David had a lot of creative drive and a lot of creative ideas. And I think sometimes people push back like, no, 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 you're Keith Partridge. That's what sells. That will make us a lot of money and go for it. Can you understand his frustration? Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a great interview a couple of years ago with Stephen Van Zant, who is little Stephen. He is one of he's the, one of the guitarists on the E Street Band. A lot of people know them as Silvio on the Sopranos. He talked about that he screwed up. That after Born in the USA came out and the band they had worked all these years to try to have you know Springsteen in the E Street Band and he felt his heart was going somewhere else so he left the band to pursue his own things. He said, "Dumbest decision he ever made in his life financially." Uh, but because of his work and his political work, he you know he helped um, push pressure to. A pinned apartheid, freed Nelson Mandela. He ended up doing other creative things. And he said, you know, looking back now, and he tells bands, don't break up your band. Go take a hiatus, go do other stuff, but never officially disband the band. Then you can come back. He said, because there... He says, you can't have it all nowadays. Back then, they wouldn't. You had to, well, okay, if you're going to do career suicide, David, fine. Uh, then I just don't want to be part of it. And incredibly frustrated. And I also think not everyone is um, Ron Howard, who, you know, gets early success, then has a second on success, and then turns into this a massive director there is there is all many stories about teen you know young stars that just can't handle that pressure and the fame involved with them yeah which is another reason why susan day made me so happy that you know she ended up having this whole second chapter in her acting life she was incredible in that role as, as you say i can remember watching it and thinking i know that actress she looked so familiar Yes. And then it was only when the credits ran at the end, I went, ah! Yes. Oh, how nice! Because yeah. you could see her growing as an actress during the Partridge family. I think part of this, right, is that I don't want to paint people in a bad light, but the reality is everyone's trying to do what they think is best to be successful. And the problem is how you define success can change depending on who you are and where you're coming and it's hard to how do you teach someone that right you said just now that you felt david was ahead of his time his concept album the higher they climb which basically was his experience of being a teen idol what were your thoughts on the way he put that album together was it a private cry for help or was it him saying, hey, this is what I've been through. Now I'm going to park this to one side. And now please accept me for what I am today. You know, 
art is you always have your perspective, right? That I end every podcast of mine on with uh, the my Bruce podcast with I asked the Mary question, which is, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? And I get different answers. Isaac Asimov uh, was a brilliant science fiction writer, and he told the story in one of his autobiographies that he was lecturing at a college and he was making a point about what about a story he had written and an audience member said, Dr. Asimov, that's not what the story is about. And Isaac being funny and, and clever said, well, I think I would know what the story is about. I wrote it. And the audience member said, well, what makes you think you know what the story is about, even though you wrote it? And Isaac said he stopped and he thought and he said, you're right. You know, I know what I wanted to write about, but once it's out in the world, what a reader or a listener or a viewer takes is up to them. And so I think I think that's what I think he was trying to share his journey. Um, I don't know necessarily if it was a cry for help, but I do think that that was his that was he was trying to do that. Um, and then we take it and view it and go, um, I'll go back to, um, Bruce, as I often do after born in the USA, he did a tunnel of love. And, um, at the time he was dating Julianne Phillips. They ended up getting married after a few years, they divorced and he ended up having a relationship that has lasted all this time with, um, you know, his wife. And you go listening to that album now, you go, oh, my goodness, this is an album about the breakup of a marriage. But I don't know if that's what he meant when he was recording. It's just afterwards, that's where it was. And so and I always think it's weird because Patty Scaffola, who is his uh, wife, she duets a couple of those songs that he had actually written when he was married to someone else. So, yeah. So I think that's a good question is what is you know, what was in his heart when he wrote that? I don't know. Is that what he was feeling, though? I think absolutely we can read that into it. Yeah. yeah. Of his later solo work, are mm-hmm. there any particular songs, productions, which stand out for you? I, I continued to follow him as a um, an actor. I did not. And, and I'm now, I'm actually looking at Wikipedia as we are talking, going, I need to I need to listen to these albums from the as a as a 60 year old to hear this different perspective. I, I know. So I, I now want to go take this. I, I am. Let's book me back in six months and I will uh, and I will do a deep dive on David's later catalog and we can talk about it deeper. How about that? Can I can I. OK, good deal, because you are going to be thoroughly educated on mm-hmm. what he did what he wrote oh, good. the songs he wrote his interpretation of covers okay they always illustrate one which comes from the wings wildlife album paul and linda's version of tomorrow okay and they wrote tomorrow but david put such a different production on it and mm. such a different emotional delivery that mccartney himself said that he had taken the song to its greatest potential. 
Wow. Mm. So if you were to listen to those back to back tomorrow from Wings Wildlife and then listen to David Cassidy's version, which mm-hmm. you find on Home is Where the Heart Is, which is one of three RCA albums which he uh, released, you'll begin to understand, and this applies to anyone who is not familiar with his music, you'll begin to understand what he was all about. You know, and you have to, and once again, uh, we're, I don't want to say, because no one knows what's in someone's heart, but I can only imagine, and I don't think it's a big stretch, you work with Jerry Beckley, you work with Bruce Johnston, you do something that you're really proud of, and you put it out to the world, and it doesn't ripple. Mm-hmm. You know, and all of a sudden you're, you put your heart into something, you know, Kevin Pollack did a podcast for a lot of years and he was talking to a guest and he says, you know, I have to explain to people, no one sets out to make a bad movie. <laughs> he says, sometimes, you know, like when you, you're watching movies, you go, wow. He says, I understand no one plans that. And you, it is, it, I imagine it just could be heartbreaking if you put in so much uh, love and your passion and your personal thoughts and you put it out there and then, you know, the world goes, eh, it just could be heartbreaking. You know, every artist needs to feed off their audience. Yes, they do. You're sitting there wearing a, an E Street Fans t-shirt. Yes, I am. Tell me how Bruce Springsteen came onto your radar. I would love that, Louise. It's um, the first time I remember hearing about Bruce was um, I was dating um, Linda. Her friend Lisa was going up to school in the East Coast, you know, and we're there in Louisiana. And she came back and she started talking about this guy named Bruce Springsteen. And this was about probably 79, it must have been 80, because Linda and I started dating in 80. I'd never heard of him. And then um, Hungry Heart came on the radio and I went, oh, yeah, that's that guy Lisa talked about. So I bought The River and uh, liked it. And then, uh, like everyone else in the world, bought Born in the USA and enjoyed all those songs. Ended up buying, um, you know, Born to Run and really loved um, that song and would play Born to Run over and over again. And then other racing in the street, which I felt like was an adult Beach Boy song. So I was kind of a casual fan, then um, kind of drifted away. I like I bought Tunnel of Love and enjoyed it. I bought the live 10 album set. It's a four CD set of uh, Bruce Springsteen Live 75 to 85, which is this huge collection of all his different live songs. And then kind of drifted away, you know, didn't care. And then I moved to Dallas in 86 and kind of things kept going on. And I started, you know, I've never seen Bruce Springsteen live. Everyone says that Bruce Springsteen amazing live. And when in 99, when the band was touring again, I just, it didn't work out our schedule of me seeing it. And then 9-11 happened, Louise. And like everyone else, I was just shattered and just can't believe. And there was a telethon, a fundraiser and on all the U.S. stations. It opened with Bruce 
and um, a lot of the E Street band, including Patty and Susie, doing the song My City of Ruin. And if you guys, if your audience wants to go to Google and search My City of Ruin, you know, 9-11 benefit, and it was hauntingly beautiful. And I went, oh my goodness, I've forgotten about Bruce. So I went and bought The Rising, which was the album he had written. The, the story is, um, because they had not had a new album, he had not done an album with the band really since um, Tunnel of Love. So this had been over 15, 20 years. And, you know, he had fired the band during the 90s. He, he went off and did a couple other things. And so supposedly after 9-11, someone stopped their truck. Bruce was on the side of the road and they said, Bruce, we need you. So the band got together and did The Rising. And the album is a lot to do with uh, 9-11 and things. And so in 2002, um, he came to Dallas in 2000. I think it was 2002. Yeah. And uh, he played in Dallas and I got to see him the first time. Louise, it was like I'd never gone to another show before. I, I was so amazed. And, and the, the issue was I had only casually listened to The Rising. So a lot of the songs I didn't know. Um, so I felt like I'd walked into a movie <clears throat> halfway through. And I loved the movie, but I knew I was missing things. So I ended up going, um, you know, studying that album, playing it over and over again. And then the next album he released was Devils and Dust. And I, he came to town and I knew every song on that album backwards and forwards. So when he played and it was a solo tour, I saw him. So what I tell people is I think there's two kinds of people, Louise. There's the people that go to their first Bruce show that go, wow, that was long. <laughs> and the second go, oh my goodness, I want to go ever. So that was it. Right. That was seeing him live and just it kind of reignited uh, the passion. And then I just started listening to more and more albums. I started going this and then uh, about six years ago, I, I was podcasting. I was doing a Doctor Who show. Um, I, I had done a Castle podcast. I had done a lot of different podcasts. And a buddy of mine does the 80s Overdrive podcast. It's a podcast all about the 80s. And he had asked me to talk about my three favorite albums of the 80s. And I realized that I could have picked all Springsteen albums. <laughs> but I didn't. I, I thought that was cheating. Then I had a couple of buddies join me and we did discuss, we discussed all the albums Bruce did in the eighties for the show. And uh, so I went to Rob and I said, Hey, Rob, who owned our network. I said, Rob, I want to do a Bruce Springsteen podcast. And he goes, okay, what's a Bruce Springsteen podcast? <laughs> and I said, well, what I plan to do is to find other Bruce Springsteen fans and talk about it with them. A couple of things led that it, one, Adam Carella, Lynette Carella, who is uh, Adam Carella's uh, wife, had done a podcast where she had interviewed friends of her and Adam's about their Bruce fandom. And I thought that was fascinating. And then Springsteen and I was a film that had been released that was all about people talking about their experiences with Bruce. The story of Rob still laughs about this. This is 2015. He hangs up the phone. He looks at Martha, who's his wife, and says, uh, Jesse's going to do a Bruce podcast. I think we'll get a season out of it. And a season to him is 12 episodes. 
I'm now at 800 plus episodes. I've been doing this for six years and uh, it just keeps going. You know, I, I agree with the people that, you know, they'll say, um, what is your guilty pleasure? And, and they will push back. I don't believe in the term guilty pleasure. I believe there, if something gives you pleasure, you should not feel guilty about it. Hearing David's version of tomorrow brings you joy. It brings you joy. You know, if, if sitting down watching Partridge Family reruns with your kids brings you joy, don't feel guilty about it. You know, um, there is so much strife and, and, and anger out there that if something brings you joy, go for it. Go for it a lot. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Sport brings you a lot of joy. Yes, it does. Uh, I and, am. Uh, and yes. Doctor Who. Yes. Tell us about yeah. those two pleasures. Yeah, absolutely. So it, I'll start with um, I was not a big sports guy when I grew up. Uh, my parents did not watch sports, they did not have a favorite sports team. And so I was in university. I had a roommate who. Um, was a huge football fan, like the New Orleans Saints. And so kind of watched the games with him. And then my wife um, really liked the Houston Oilers. And so uh, we kind of casually started watching. And then in 86, when we moved to Dallas, the, I, I think the closest is the, the little neighborhoods that love um, your, your football there is just a passion. Well, the Dallas has that passion here. And so I started watching the games. It became part of your Sunday ritual. And then um, my son was born in 89, um, which was the year that Jerry Jones bought the team, Dallas Cowboys and uh, Tom Landry was fired, which was kind of sacrilege around here. He had been the coach for 29 years. They ended up drafting Troy Aikman and uh, we had Emmett Smith and Michael Irvin. And so the Dallas Cowboys went through a run where they won three out of four Super Bowls in the early 90s. And so my son grew up now just adoring Dallas sports. You know how people decorate their house for Christmas? Yeah. Chris comes over. He is 30. He'll be 30. He was 33 this past week. Every weekend during football season, he comes to our house. Sunday morning, the house is covered with Dallas Cowboy memorabilia. Uh, there is, you know, we have throws and we have uh just you know signs and banners and you know we watch the game win or lose so the dallas cowboys have been this this father son you know mom dad bonding so we love that um i'm a big uh we love you know all the dallas sports so a big team so a lot of the cowboys and and sports are mixed up with my my relationship with my son wrestlemania is coming back to dallas yeah. and uh we're going to um i knew he loved me because the last time wrestlemania was in dallas the same night uh bruce springsteen was going to be in oklahoma city and he skipped wrestlemania to go see bruce with me in oklahoma city because it was his first show so yeah so we're we're going to go back to wrestlemania this year doctor who came about with i'd had two friends, both Charles and Ken had talked for years about how much they loved Doctor Who. And I just had never kind of watched it. 
someone on a Firefly podcast mentioned that Malcolm Reynolds, if for those of you who follow that show, it was Nathan Fillion was the character and um, Captain Jack Harkness from Torchwood were the same character because they gave the reasons. And I went to my buddy, Ken, and I said, who's this Captain Jack guy? And he goes, oh, that's from Torchwood. I said, oh, well, what's Torchwood? Oh, I said, kind of a Doctor Who spinoff, but you don't have to watch Doctor Who to watch it. Here's the DVDs. Like, okay. So I watched Torchwood and fell in love with it. I'm like, oh, this is great. So I went back to Ken and I said, I really like Captain Jack. Can you tell me what Doctor Who episodes he's on? He goes, well, it's just easier for you to watch the first season. So here, here's the Christopher Eccleston is, uh, this is his season. And I vaguely knew that um, the same actor played the character. I, I kind of understood regeneration. I knew something about this guy had a scarf, the blue TARDIS. I didn't know it was a TARDIS, but I knew there was this police box. And so I, I put in the reboot in 2005. It was on a Christmas afternoon. Linda was, uh, you know, we had had a full Christmas day. And so she had gone to bed early. Uh, there was nothing on the DVR. So I just put in the first uh, DVD. I went, wow, this is really good. And so then I just went through, you know, uh, all the different seasons. Matt Smith was the first doctor that I had seen from the beginning. And so since then, I've just been a massive fan. And I grew up loving Star Trek, and I still do. If you if I had to pick, I would pick Star Trek slightly over Doctor Who just because the joy I got it as a kid, but it's close. And so when Rob reached out to me, I had guest starred on a couple of podcasts on his network, and he said, we want to do a Doctor Who podcast. We already do one that's a that's a family based that, you know, his daughter, his wife and him all talked about new who he said, but we want to do one that is not so much. We want a couple of adults talking about it. Like we would a normal show. And would you be interested? I go, yeah. So I picked up the phone and I called my friend Charles who lives in Ohio. And I said, Hey Charles, you know how you've been wanting me to watch Dr. Who? Yeah. I said, well, I've started watching. Oh, that's great. I said, do you want to do a podcast? Yeah. What do I need? Oh, it's easy. We are now up to like 250 episodes of uh, Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast. Yeah. And so we, we go live every week. We review every new episode. Uh, so when this show's on, we record weekly. And then uh, we've now settled into every other week when it's off the air. And Charles picks a classic episode or a modern era. Because, you know, we really didn't start till... Um, the Cabaldi era was when we first started doing it. So yeah, so I'm, uh, um, I have my little, I have a TARDIS over there on my side. And uh, so Doctor Who is, um, in fact, my Twitter bio is a Texan uh, obsessed with Bruce Springsteen and Doctor Who. <laughs> you don't have any time to do anything else, do you? I do not. I, I do. And in fact, I just started and my wife rolled her eyes and I have two really good friends that I, Karen is the one I did the Castle podcast with, and Lou and I did a Farscape podcast years ago. And so Karen, Lou, and I are all going through Babylon 5, going through one episode at a time, and neither Karen or Lou have seen it, and I have, so I get to be the 
veteran and we're going through that and we're doing that every other week too so yes i'm i'm podcast out i'm yeah. gonna find time to do a deep dive into david's later career yeah. I'm, I'm i'm thrilled now no you will find the time and you will yes. be i hope you will be amazed oh i i just i'm already excited about it i can't wait let's tell our listeners where they can find the link to your springsteen <laughs> podcast yeah, um, so Facebook is Jesse Jackson in Louisville, Texas. Um, my Twitter handle is at Jesse Jackson DFW. I had to put in the DFW because I was getting a lot of nasty um, emails that they thought I was the Reverend Jesse Jackson, the civil rights oh. leader. And so I was getting all this ugly tweets about white lives matter. And I was like, hey, wrong, Jesse Jackson. But you can listen to my Doctor Who podcast. Uh, yeah. So the name of the podcast is Set Lusting Bruce, a Bruce Springsteen podcast. It is, if you love music, I really recommend um, you can listen to it. It is not just Bruce Springsteen. I had Louise on and we had a lovely talk about David. Um, I've had people on to talk about Leonard Cohen, um, ACDC. Um, you know, we've had John Hyatt, you know, the Beach Boys. So a lot of different bands. Um, and I have, I try to get other podcasters and writers on the show. So it, it, it's turned out to be a more of a conversation podcast. So um, a lot of good episodes I really recommend. I just had a guy on, um, Ed Bark, who is a former uh, Dallas Morning News, the newspaper retired TV critic. And every two months he joins me and we kind of just talk what's going on with TV. And so this last couple weeks, this last week, I had an episode with Ed talking about the Super Bowl and how sports has changed and how the halftime has changed. Uh, setlustingbruce at gmail.com is my email address. Uh, but um, anywhere you can find me, uh, just be careful when you Google Jesse Jackson, you will get a lot of stuff about the civil rights leader. So if you do Jesse Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, it will probably come up. Fair enough. I'll put all that into the show notes as well. So people thank can you, find, my friend. Find you. We're recording this on the 12th of February. So what's your prediction for the Super Bowl? So this is great because um, I don't have a skin in the game. My sister is a massive LSU fan. Growing up in Louisiana, it's hard not to be. Um, Cincinnati has Burroughs, who was an LSU guy. And the idea of, um, you know, this the Bengals have never won is really appealing. Matthew Stafford is from Dallas. He went to uh, a high Highland Park High School here in the Dallas area. My son and I are watching and we're like, we can't lose. Either way, like either quarterback we have a connection to. I think it'll be the Rams, though I part of me would love to have this magical journey of the Bengals. A sad thing, Louise. <laughs> The Cincinnati Bengals have won more playoff games this year than the Cowboys have in the last 26 years. <gasps> oh, I didn't yes. know that. I yeah, know. I know. It's just, <laughs> that hurts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, hope strength eternal, but it should be a good game. Um, I'm excited about it. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Chris and I are going to watch it. And uh, so we'll see. Yeah. Do you have a prediction? I wish I understood more of the rules of the game. Yes. Having been a sports editor all my life, um, it's the only sport 
I never really understood, but it's so right. exciting. Yes. I mean, it's probably like most Americans don't understand cricket. Yes. There's something special that American sport does. And when we come over and go to NASCAR, mm-hmm. it's the accessibility to to the drivers, but it's the half-time or the pre-race yeah. build-up, the entertainment factor. Yes. It becomes an experience for the fans beyond watching a game or watching a race. We talk about this on the podcast. Ed Bark said that, not that anyone's listening to him, but he said, you you do the halftime show and, you know, they stop, you build the stage. And I've had people on the podcast who were there when Bruce did the Super Bowl halftime and they talked about the story. They had to practice like everyone kind of bringing the stage out, mm-hmm. setting it up and then performing and then taking it apart. He said it would be so much better if they would have a a stage set up outside the stadium where they could they could cut to that because it's for tv mostly and the people in the stands could be watching it on the big screen and then do that and then cut back to the uh, you know the field and then you could it would be a little less halftime show time-wise for the players but yeah it's going to be fun it's going to be great and it is kind of a spectacle i will predict the rams not because Very of nice. any home advantage, but I just think their mindset might just be a little bit sharper. I think I think you have a that's a good point. Most people are picking the Rams, which I which will make it for an interesting game that if the Bengals end up, you know, being able to do something. We shall watch it. I always sit up and watch it. We'll make a note of this and we'll see. Well, yeah. Jesse, this has been wonderful. I've enjoyed it so much. Well, Louise, I I thank you so much for inviting me. I hope your audience had fun listening to me ramble. I love listening to your uh, stories and your podcast. Um, You've had so many great people talk about. It's just always interesting to hear people speak from their heart Mm. and share stories about their passion. So keep it up. Great job. And uh, I'll join anytime. Okay, that's wonderful. That's a date for the future. Thank you to Jesse for his time today. By the time this episode is released, we will know the result of the Super Bowl and what a game it was. Thank you for downloading this podcast. And remember, you can find all episodes dating back to August 2020 on the archives wherever you get your podcasts from. So until we connect again, take care.